All right. Michael, you you you've like been covering this for a while and are kind of an expert in how energy works. Do you see like a highly lucrative uh, consulting career in your near future? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, listen, if anyone's listening, I'm trying to sell out as soon as possible. So <laughs> <laughs> go to the dark side, Michael. <laughs> This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, violent crime is up in the city, and DA Jason Williams is asking for more money from the city council to help combat it. Also, The Lens has learned that the Louisiana State Patrol utilized drones in the summer of 2020 to surveil participants in the protests following the murder of George Floyd. The New Orleans City Council voted last week to rehire the same two utility consultants it's relied on for decades to regulate Entergy New Orleans. COVID cases have dropped in local schools, indicating a possible peak from the Omicron variant, and new vaccine mandates go into effect on February 1st. We'll talk about what the reaction has been. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hey, Marta. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Nick, first up with you, amid a public dispute with the New Orleans police chief, DA Jason Williams went before the city council on Monday and asked for more money for his budget to target and prosecute violent crime. First off, give us some background on the meeting. So Council President Helena Moreno called a series of meetings to kind of convene all the criminal justice uh, system actors and, and kind of try and get from them what, what uh, the city needs to do and, and find out what can be done to address this you know, rise in violent crime. What did Jason Williams ask city council for? Uh, so he asked for money uh, to hire more prosecutors. Um, he said that that he needs to kind of build out his staff, both at, at criminal district court and juvenile court to handle the number of cases. The context of this as well is that because of coronavirus, cases haven't been moving through the system um, in in the way that they normally would. So there's only been a handful of jury cases in the past two years. Um, and normally there would have been dozens. Um, so a number of cases are just kind of languishing in the system and, and there's this, this backlog of cases. So, um, he wants to he wants to you know hire a handful of new prosecutors, and then he also wants to add some investigators and and a prosecutor to man the real time crime center, which is kind of the city's surveillance hub. Um, and what exactly their role would be in that is a little bit unclear. And then another thing is he wants to he wants the city council to to provide money to train. Uh, DNA analysts that would work at the state police lab right now. New Orleans doesn't do any of its own DNA analysis. Um, so the DA was saying that there, there's this backlog in, in uh, DNA cases where he thinks that, that if they had the had the um, DNA, they could you know turn that into a, a guilty plea or um, fairly quickly and kind of move some of these cases through the system. Okay, and one of the important partners in in well the important partner in prosecuting crime is the police department. So, but there's been some criticism from Williams for uh, NLPD. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a, a mutual uh, uh, criticism be between the two departments. Uh, the police superintendent last week sort of came out and, and, and you know, he's sort of alluded to this even even before then, but that the back end of the criminal justice system to which he was, he's talking about the DA's office and, and the court system are basically not holding people accountable, um, that his, off, his, his department is making arrests and the you know either the da is is dropping the charges or you know they're having low bond set and they're just getting out of jail and and maybe you know or maybe getting really light sentences and they they keep having to rearrest the same people over and over the da is basically saying that's not true at all and and in fact you know has blamed the police department for not making enough arrests um and having a, a low clearance rate on both uh homicides and carjackings so that's kind of been the back and forth. And, and uh, Monday when, when the DA presented, you know, he presented the data from, from carjackings in the past year and, and kind of showed that there were upwards of 200 carjackings in, in 2021. And in only about, you know, a quarter of those were, were an arrest made. And his office had been, has moved forward with prosecutions on, you know, all but a, all but a couple. Um, so I think that, that there may be some instances in which the police chief could point to, to sentences or, or bails that he hasn't, um, approved of, but, but there's also data to suggest that, that in fact, these, these crimes are being prosecuted. But, you know, one of the things that the DA suggested in addition to, to asking for the council for more money is there are these two targeted task forces that he wants to set up with the police department. One is a multi-agency gang unit that has existed in the past. And then another is this serial crimes task force that um, he would he wants to, to partner with the police and with the FBI uh, to, to kind of specifically target uh, carjackings and, and armed robberies is, is what he said at the meeting. And he claims that he presented these plans to, to the superintendent back in March and that basically they just didn't hear anything from NOPD. And I think eventually he said now that they've, they've gotten a commitment from the chief that, that he will sign on to the gang unit. But at the meeting, he basically said, we haven't heard anything about the serial crimes initiative. And he even said, he said, you know, if they had signed these back in March, we wouldn't be in this crime search. You know, he mm -hmm. said this would have solved the problem. Um, this is interesting because I, as I was listening to the meeting, I, I emailed the NOPD and I said, you know, the DA is saying that, that you won't sign on to these initiatives and that, that really these are would would do a lot to solve the problem. But they had. And yeah, and what he said was we signed on to this uh, agreement back in, you know, last year. So I, I took that to the DA and the DA's office said that this was the first they were hearing about it. Um, do we have so, any idea what happened there? No, I don't. Um, you know, I think that there was there was a brief line in some previous reporting that the NOPD said that maybe the other agencies, so FBI and uh, Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, another federal agency, that maybe there was some hesitation on their part to sign on. Mm -hmm. um, but that, at least from what they told me, the DA's office never got word of that. Though That reasoning was never presented to them and it wasn't kind of a collaborative effort to see how they could convince them to sign on or maybe move forward without them. It was just sort of dropped. But more than anything, you know, it sort of highlights this this 
lack of communication that I think a lot of the this city and the council members are worried about between the two two departments. Right. Um, right. The fact you know the fact that this was made a big issue and may have just been some sort of miscommunication. Hmm. Yeah. Well, so the interesting you know additional political and, and you know sort of philosophical backdrop that's that's going on here is I think what I'm seeing here is is. Jason Williams wanting to project himself as being will as being you know he ran as a progressive prosecutor and everything so he's trying to project himself as being willing to tackle violent crime person crimes um, which is something that that in fact he did say when he was a candidate and when he first came into office that that's where he wanted to put his resources um, well on the other side that the police department um, is uh, beyond being critical of Jason is Sean Ferguson is is uh, leveling an implied criticism at at a lot of the reforms that have taken on in that have been taken on in Jason's office and beyond over the past couple of years. Uh, Ferguson was talking; he didn't use this terminology exactly, but he is more interested. He seems to be more interested in in uh, in uh, sort of going back to a broken windows theory style of policing. Um, you know, it really aggressively going after small and quality of life crimes with the hope that you can, uh, you know, catch people doing something else. Well, let's um, clarify here, tinted windows as well. Yes, yes. He actually, he actually talked about tinted windows, um, you know, and that, that, that's not an entirely surprising, um, you know, attitude that, you know, that's, you know, a tool in the police's toolbox that they've, that they've had. For a long time, it's familiar to them. They believe it produces the right results. Not everybody agrees with them, but it's not surprising from the police. I guess, from your perspective, Nick, do you think that Jason's, uh, Jason Williams's new, uh, his, his current posturing is is consistent with the Jason Williams that we saw on the campaign trail and early in his term? I've actually been thinking about that. I don't think it's completely contradictory. He's he was, you know, throughout his campaign talking about being focused on violent crime and, and you know, holding holding uh, people who who violate, you know, the trust of the community and, you know, holding them accountable in, in kind of the most serious ways. At the same time, he wasn't out there talking about, you know, sentencing enhancements or, you know, reviving multi-agency gang task forces. Those were not sort of the key points that he was making. Mm-hmm. So, on the one hand, it's not so surprising to see. On the other hand, like I said, this is not the people who got him elected. These were not the types of things that they were pushing him to do. And, and I would say, I think, I think I, I agree with you there. I think, I think part of the reason it's inconsistent, or it's, it may not be seen as inconsistent, is he did do a lot. He talked a lot about specifically how he was going to reform the office in terms of not going after people for lower level crimes so much, not taking sort of half baked cases from the NOPD, especially for lower level cr- crimes. Um, and we have indeed seen those things. But he, on the other hand, he would he would sort of just say, I want to focus on violent crime. That's who I want to hold accountable. But he didn't get into the same level specifics on that as he did on the other side. Yes, I think that that's that's absolutely right. And I mean, you know, we saw this with charging juveniles as adults. Um, I mean, I think that's the one place where you can kind of point to something that he very specifically obviously said that he would not do on the campaign trail and has done now that he's in office and sort of under under pressure to 
show that he's really kind of addressing this this violent crime issue. So, I mean, and then, like I said, he one of the things that he brought up in the council meeting, he's been charging these carjackings as armed robberies to increase the increase the sentences. You know, another tool that he has said that he will never use is the is the habitual offender law. And I think that that's something that that especially given the current context is is worth keeping an eye on is if he kind of holds to that promise, because that is another tool in his belt. If he if he feels like he's seeing, you know, violent criminals uh, getting reduced sentences and 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 if that starts to frustrate him, he could potentially reach for that. Although it does, it does appear to me, and it, this just occurred to me, that they may be looking for ways around that, because uh, you know, as of yesterday in the city council meeting, we have uh, council members talking about making adjustments to the state racketeering statute, which is another, uh, which is another form of sentence enhancement that has nothing to do with the habitual, habitual offender law. It's the same thing as the, you know, the federal RICO statute, which is what you use to go after organized crime. Um, and uh, there was some talk yesterday in city council, and I guess Jason Williams is involved in these talks, from what I understand, about taking some suggestions to the legislature about how to uh, make, make, the, make the racketeering statute applicable in cases where it currently isn't. Um, so that might be part of the strategy here. Uh, it's how, how to mm. get longer sentences without having to employ the habitual offender law. Nick, can I ask, I'm wondering what your impression is. I mean, obviously th- this is policymakers responding to a jump in crime. It's also politicians responding to a political moment, kind of the same way we saw politicians responding to the George Floyd demonstration with, you know, certain promises or certain policy suggestions that never came to fruition. I'm wondering, specifically with Williams, but I guess kind of overall right now, whether you're sensing that we're looking at a serious, real policy shift here, or is this, you know, politicians calculating that we need to react and show people that we're taking this seriously right now? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, and it's, I guess we'll kind of see what comes out of these meetings and what what gets followed through on. I will say, yeah, I mean, the, the shift in rhetoric is, is pretty stark and pretty remarkable, you know, to hear kind of the police chief go up in front of the council and say, we need to be making more stops for expired brake tags and tinted windows, and to not really get any pushback from any of the council members, you know, if he had said that two years ago after George, you know, or a year and a half ago after George Floyd, I can't, I mean, I assume that someone would have, you know, stepped up and said, you know, this isn't what we want our police to be doing right now. Um, we want to reduce the number of minor interactions, you know, that police have with with, uh, with our citizens. Um, so, you know, I, I think that implicitly some of this rhetoric is going to translate into, into policy and, and um, whether or not, you know, that actually gets, you know, written out into city ordinances. It's, it's kind of the public permissiveness to for the police to to go yeah. after lower, low, lower level things um how exactly that plays out i'm, I'm not entirely sure yeah. yeah yeah i will say i will say that you know when you're talking about police deployment and police policy that can change on a dime um so you know that that those sorts of things could just be you know a momentary thing but when you're talking about going and making changes at up in baton rouge um, that does that does point to to a greater degree of permanence, especially because uh, you know we're talking about a 
very pro, you know, you know, the, the legislature, uh, the legislature makes, makes laws with eyes toward New Orleans, but the legislature is not New Orleans. Um, we're talking about a very, very pro law enforcement, very conservative legislature that, um, you know, is it, that, that is going to be more than happy to, to, to work on, work on legislation that does sentence enhancement and stuff like yeah. that. Yes, but not as nimble. You said the police can turn on a dime. They certainly can't. And yeah, it would yeah. take a while. Nick, also in criminal justice, you broke a story that the Louisiana State Police deployed drones in New Orleans and Baton Rouge to monitor protests following the murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020. What do we know about how drones were used during these protests? Well, we don't know a lot about how they were used. We have flight logs that indicate that two drones were were used during the June 3rd, 2020 protest in New Orleans, which you'll remember was the day in which uh, demonstrators attempted to cross the Crescent City connection um, and were sprayed with tear gas by the police department and um, who also shot shot uh, projectiles and, and, and rubber bullets at them. And, you know, that became sort of an, on, uh, a controversial uh, moment and, and led to uh, a, a partial ban on tear gas in the city um, and also a, a lawsuit. So basically we know that the state police deployed these drones and were specifically utilizing them for this protest. Um, we can see that from the flight logs. Beyond that, um, they've been fairly uh, tight-lipped about what exactly the footage was used for, why exactly they were there, if any local uh, law enforcement or, or city government asked them to to deploy the drones. They won't say the mayor's office has declined to comment on whether they were aware. The DA's office so far has not responded and neither has the New Orleans Police Department. And I'll, I'll just add that, you know, I was looking at the flight logs and one of those two drones, I believe the flight log time was 300 minutes. So it's, so five hours. So presumably it was following the entire protests as it wound through the city and well before it became, you know, what was what police would describe as a dangerous situation. Did they use them other nights too? Because I know you guys were out on the third, but I was out on the fourth and there were multiple drones around. I don't know if they were police or, you know, personal drones, but there were definitely drones around. Well, we just, uh, I, I, the first request we sent in was for, uh, was specifically for the third and several other dates we were interested in for other reasons, for other coverage we've been doing. Um, so as of, as of right now, we, we can't say if they've been used, if they were used during other protests uh, during those couple of weeks. And some of the surveillance drones, I don't know, I don't know exactly what the state police are using, but there's different, you know, some of the drones that police use around the country fly so high, you don't see them. Um, and like they take these real huge bird's eye view that kind of allow you to see you know, traffic patterns and I guess in this case, crowd patterns. So it's possible that even, you know, when it comes to state police drones, we're not seeing them, but you know, who knows? Well, it begs the question, what, what do they use them for? Do they, what do we know about how they utilize them? So the state police policy is quite broad um, when it comes to drones. And, you know, basically they can, 
it says they can provide aerial observation capabilities in support of public safety, emergency response, and first uh, responder situational awareness. So, I mean, public safety, you can make an argument, is is a, a quite a, a broad um, uh, kind of catch-all for, for whatever they deem uh, necessary. So, you know, whether or not they were, as Michael said, sort of just tracking crowd patterns or whether or not they were sort of trying to focus in on something they considered criminal or, or, you know, trying to gather evidence for potential prosecutions is we don't know. There were five arrests made um, during the protests and I've been trying to, to kind of figure out what the current disposition of, of those arrests were and if it was possible that, that maybe they would, you know, the drone footage would be used in, in the prosecutions, but so far I haven't been able to get, get really any answers from, from, uh, the DA's office or from, from the city's attorney's office on, on where those are at. But, you know, more than anything, I think it, it kind of just brings up the broader questions of, you know, that, that the citywide surveillance system brings up. Um, and, and this is just another tool that, that the city and the state have to kind of monitor uh, people, you know, when they don't know they're being monitored right. necessarily. Right. So what's the response been to the news that, that this, was, this happened? It hasn't been published um, yet. One local uh, sort of surveillance, I don't know, not anti-surveillance, but maybe anti-surveillance uh, advocacy organization, Ion Surveillance, um, provided a statement that, that basically said this is not what we should be utilizing um, our law enforcement resources to do. We shouldn't be focused, I mean, focused on a, a, non-viol- a non-violent protests. Do they say non-violent protests in their statement? Yeah, so that's, you know, that's ion surveillance and, I you know, whether they're anti-surveillance or, or just merely surveillance skeptical, that's a natural reaction for them, you know, I, but, you know, the, keep in mind, we don't, we don't know exactly why they were used, if they had a, a, a more pressing need for them than simply surveilling a, a protest, although, you know, the three, the, the 300 minutes in the air does, does suggest that, that it was about surveilling a protest, but, you know, again, we don't know. Um, and, you know, in anticipation of the social media comments, this is one of those things that we're reporting because it's a thing that happened. So the, the knee-jerk response of, you know, what's wrong with that? Mm-hmm. Well, we're not saying anything's wrong with that necessarily. <laughs> and if I can expand on, on, you know, kind of eye on surveillance, you know, I, I think when it comes to surveillance stories and, you know, similarly, we, we reported um, last week or maybe the week before that the city had used some of its surveillance cameras um, you know, in, in these civil service decisions to, to kind of prove um, employee misconduct and fire those employees. And we kind of got similar questions of, you know, what, what, what's so wrong with that? And similar to what Charles is saying, you know, we're, we're not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, if you look at it from the perspective of someone like, like a group like Iron Surveillance, you know, basically what they've been arguing this whole time, you know, less than here's what surveillance should be used for, here's what it shouldn't be used for. They've been arguing that we need some sort of structure or some sort of regulatory structure to make sure that, you know, citizens are aware of what surveillance tools are being used and that there's clearly defined uses for them. So, you know, it's like broadly it's the difference between active or reactive regulation, right? So when a new medication comes out, the FDA, before it's released to the public, will make sure it's safe for people. Um, You know, when it comes to like a workout supplement, that's more of a reactive regulation in that those things aren't approved off the bat. It's only when, you know, a pre-workout shake gives 20 people a heart attack 
then, you know, then there's a reaction to, okay, this isn't right. We need to take this off the shelves. And so currently in surveillance, there's no approval for this stuff on the front end. For the most part, you know, the government is free to add new surveillance tools for whatever they want, you know, and, and in this specific example, you know, there is no policy dictating, for example, that the drones can be used to make sure protests are safe rather than documenting who is at those protests, right? Policies like that, that would be more specific to, we have all these surveillance tools, how do we as a society want these to be used and how do we not want them to be used? And, and so I think when it comes to, to iron surveillance, obviously they have times where they say this isn't right, but more than that, I think their, their prevailing attitude is that this needs to be democratized and that there needs to be a community conversation where we decide, hey, do we want drones surveilling our protests? Is that something that we're okay with? And, and right now there's just not a lot of avenue, you know, for community input on, on those decisions. Which I, which I would add is, is um, it's, it's part of why it's important to know what the city's involvement in this was, because oh. this was a purely state police decision you know that's you know that's less accessible to 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 the residents of New Orleans to directly have a dialogue with them about the use of surveillance. But if if there was a, a direct city request, you know we'd like it would be important for people to know the reason for the request and uh, and 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 you know whether the city believes that that this is this is a proper use yeah. of, of their partnership with the Louisiana State Police because people in New Orleans can appeal directly to their local elected officials. Right. And if I could just add to that quickly, another reason why that's, you know, significant is because if you remember for years the city, you know, told the public it wasn't using facial recognition and we found out, you know, 2 years after they were telling the public that that they actually were, right. but they were accessing by partnering with a state agency. And so again, you know, figuring out whether they were working with the NOPD, whether this was their request, or again, like Charles said, whether the state police was just, you know, using their own jurisdiction, you know, independent of the police. Yeah, it's a, it's a super important question. Was any of this, like you just reported recently going into the real-time crime center, like where did anyone else have access to this footage? The city yeah. has recently used surveillance in different capacities regarding employment. So I think it raises a ton of questions. I should say the, the state police have said that generally this footage isn't stored um but they would need to you know i asked about this specific date and they said they would need to go back and check so yeah how those decisions are made still is is definitely an open question but they did say that that gener generally it isn't stored so so far nick the response from the city was no comment right yes is this one of those where what what michael was referring to with the um facial recognition software they they were utilizing another a third party if you will to um to 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 process that, and so they they technically weren't themselves, but they were getting the information from this third party. Is this, do you go back and ask them a question about these drones again in another way to see if you can get more information or an answer? Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that we'll continue to, to look into, and you know, there are other ways to kind of try and find out if the city was communicating with the state police around that time, and um, we might have, you know, might, might wanna, utilize those uh, other avenues to see see mm. what comes up. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, education reporter Marta Jusen, 
and Lens Editor, Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom, dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. As an advocate for openness, we provide readers with the source documents used in our reporting, inviting them to check and challenge our work or to build on it through their own research. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Michael, this week, the New Orleans City Council rehired the same two consultants it's relied on for decades to help regulate Entergy New Orleans. At the same time, however, the council launched a headhunting search to replace them. Who are these consultants and why are they important? Yeah, so so this is a this is a story that we've been covering, you know, for, for a long time now. And um, you know, I'll, I'll try to breeze through this, but just to give some quick background on on kind of how regulating energy works. Um, you know, when it comes to regulating energy companies, you know, nationally, the, the kind of norm is for these to be handled at the state level by by state public service commission. New Orleans is a pretty unique case in that um, our utility is is an investor owned local utility. Um, regulated by the city council rather than at the state. And, and that model offers some advantages. Um, you know, we get to, you know, make decisions that are, you know, good for New Orleans. And, and you know, we can make decisions, for example, to, to you know, switch to renewables, you know, while we're in a more conservative state that might not make that switch, you know, for a little while um, after that. The downside is that regulating an energy company is really hard and, and you're going up against, you know, Fortune 500 companies um, with armies of lawyers and lobbyists and a city government doesn't always have, you know, the same resources that a state government has to kind of, you know, go up against these these uh, companies and, and really make them do what the regulators want them to do. So that's kind of setting up what, you know, what, what's happening in New Orleans. I mean, so basically since New Orleans took over regulating energy in the 80s, They've almost exclusively done it by hiring these very expensive out-of-town consultants. Most utility regulators at the state level, you know, they have staffs of, of dozens of people working on this. And, you know, all utilities hire some consultants and specialists to do, you know, very specialized work. Um, but, you know, they, they still maintain these large staff, these lar large internal staffs that actually direct what the office does. Um, in New Orleans, the internal staff has traditionally been super, super small. In fact, at, at certain times in the last uh, few decades, there have been no employees in, in the council's utility regulatory office whatsoever. So we've really kind of outsourced, traditionally we've re really outsourced um, the regulation of energy to these um, private consultants. And not only have we outsourced regulation to consultants, we've also relied on the same group of consultants for you know decades now just to add to what michael's saying that the uh two main consulting firms kind of have a a rotating group of 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 people so it's 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 two consultants but it's essentially it's essentially in many ways like one group of people over time yeah and you know we did some reporting in, in 2019 about you know uh how these consultants had used, you know, political connections, political contributions to kind of help them 
keep these contracts, you know, decade after decade, just keep getting these contracts over and over and over again. And soon after that reporting, um, the, the city council under um, utility chair Helena Moreno started making some some changes to how the, the, the council does this. So, you know, the goal for the past couple of years has been to actually more like three years now, has been to reduce the amount of work that consultants are doing while growing the in-house staff, which has been happening. Um, the staff has grown. Um, we've seen utility bills, you know, utility consultant bills come down by around $2 million at this point. But now we have a new city council um, and Helena Moreno is no longer the utility chair. The new utility chair um, is JP Morell, a uh, council member who just got elected. Um, and so, you know, the, the kind of significance of this moment is, okay, we've been going through these reforms for the past few years. Now we've got a new utility chair who's going to head up energy regulation. Is this still going to continue in the same way? Or is Morel kind of going to go a different direction and maybe stick with the consultants and kind of the system we have now? So that's kind of the moment why people were watching this vote. Okay. And why is this contract coming up now? So the contract, you know, traditionally has come up, these contracts have come up every five years, um, you know, uh, for, for being rebid, you know, the process of, of putting out a request for proposals, getting, you know, um, you know, people to respond and choosing a, a candidate. Um, and so that process, it was put out for bid for the first time since 2016 last year. And in response, the city, so the city, there's two uh, consultant groups. There's the legal consultants and the technical consultants. Um, and for each of those categories, the city only got two respondents, mm. including the existing um, consultants. So the reason why this is coming up now is, you know, basically JP Morell has come in and he said, I'm also interested in carrying on the exact same reforms that were happening under Helena Moreno. I want to reduce consultant use and I want to look for new consultants. I mean, specifically what the goal really is, is, you know, again, most most utility regulators don't just have generalist consultants, you know, that, that do all of our work. They have rosters of qualified consultants that they will pick up for specific projects, specific dockets, whatever it may be. And so the ultimate goal, according to JP Morrell and his predecessor, Helena Moreno, is to, instead of just hiring, you know, on these huge multi-million dollar contracts, it's to qualify a, a bunch of firms that the city council could then call on um, at any time when they need them. Now, Morel, you know, in an interview was basically saying that, you know, we only got two respondents in each category, and that really isn't enough to make the changes we want to make. And, you know, something that we had reported on back in 2019 and something that Morel mentioned, you know, in that interview was that it's hard to get people to respond to a contract that has been controlled by the same group of consultants for 30 years. I think, you know, again, Morel was saying that a lot of law firms, a lot of these consultants might just think, well, New Orleans loves, you know, these consultants and they're not going to um, change no matter what. Right. And, you know, there, there have been outright allegations of, uh, of uh, corruption and impropriety. Firms that have applied for this in the past have accused the city of, of improperly choosing the same consultants over and over again mm. um, because of political contributions and other things. So basically what, what Morell's argument was is we didn't get enough respondents to really make the changes we want. So for right now, we're going to make this stop get, get measure where we're going to hire these consultants for a maximum of a year, but maybe not even that long. Um, at the same time, they, they, the council voted to kind of launch this headhunting search where they're gonna hire a firm to go out and really kind of recruit people to respond to the city's bid, you know, to really kind of 
show people that, hey, you know, in the past, you know, this has kind of been a routine renewal for these consultants, but now we're really taking this seriously. We really want to hear from y'all. And, and so basically Morel is saying, we're still on the same path. We're still on the same reform path, but, you know, to do this, we've got to go out and convince people that this is, you know, a real opportunity. What's the timeline on all of this? So the, the timeline for the consultants, um, it's a little unclear. So, you know, basically the consultants got up to a year. Um, you know, Morel says that hopefully this search will not take a year. Um, but, you know, I think it's going to, what he was saying is what happens next kind of depends on how successful this headhunting search is. You know, if, if we attract a lot of, um, of responses, we might be redesigning the way we operate, you know, the, 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 the regulation of energy overall and, and kind of develop a process for picking up consultants for specific projects. It, it could be that they come back and there just still aren't many respondents. I mean, it's possible they come back and the council decides the existing consultants are still the best ones. So the goal seems to be for this to happen by the end of 2022, that we should we should not go to, into 2023 with the same status quo. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Marta. COVID numbers are dropping in local schools. It could be that Omicron has peaked and we're on the downswing here. What did uh, COVID numbers look like? Yeah, so they actually looked, I hate to say good, um, <laughs> I guess, but the district is only tracking 600-ish uh, case, cases right now, which is a lot lower than the 2,200 they were tracking two weeks ago. So it's nice to see those numbers coming down. I think we've heard the same thing from public health officials across the city. Generally speaking, that cases are coming down, you know, that that's Dr. Joe Cantor, Dr. Avegno are saying similar things. Um, I'm certainly not a epidemiologist, but it, it seems to be trending that way. So I think that's a little bit of a hopeful message. Yeah. And, the, and, and I think the good news about the, the other good news about the cases going down is, you know, from what I understand when it comes to the schools, it's not that the cases are going down because testing has gone down, which was, is something we've seen in the past. Um, the school system is continuing to do surveillance testing, isn't it? They are, and they've done either somewhere between 10,000 and 18,000 tests per week for the last three weeks. Yeah. And over those three weeks, it has gone from 13% positive to 7% positive to 5% positive last week. And what about quarantines? Uh, quarantines have also gone down this week. They're at about just a little over 1,000. The, the week prior, they were up at 4,000, which was pretty wow. high and up close to 10% of the staff and students in the district. However, it's good to see those numbers dropping off. Yeah. And Marta, the Orleans Parish School District is one of a handful that has a very strict vaccine mandate that rolls out February 1st, requiring all students five and older to be fully vaccinated. What's the reaction been? So... Generally, I think people have been receptive. Um, the other thing here is that it's going to take a little while for us to see data and compliance data because of the nature of the decentralized school district. So uh, we won't quite know so early, but, you know, New Orleans is a blue island in a red state that has a much higher vaccine rate than the rest of the state. So, yeah, I mean, New Orleans has a bit well, but... Yeah. New Orleans as a city already has a vaccination rate that's, you know, that's comparable to, you know, large coastal, you know, very, very, very liberal cities rather than, you know, the rest of the state of Louisiana. So I, I don't see or I don't anticipate that we'll see much pushback. But of course, to the extent that there is any pushback, the, the big asterisk here is that 
the vaccine, uh, so-called vaccine mandate for schools in any school system in Louisiana is not an actual vaccine mandate. Hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it, it is as simple as print, to get out of it. It's as simple as printing out a form and signing it. So there's also yeah. that. I literally read this form the other day, which I hadn't seen before, which I just shared with you all. <laughs> it is, it, it just says I dissent and that's it. Mm. Like, right. You didn't have to say anything else. That's all. <laughs> right. Well, it's hopeful news. Let's let's hope it continues. And on that note, um, I will tell our listeners that we are taking a little, another little mini break here. The podcast is going to be on hiatus for a couple of weeks while I'm out. So um, we'll see you on the other side of that. And hopefully the numbers will be minuscule by that time. Yeah. yeah I, have one more, I have one more plug if I can put it in. Yeah. The superintendent search uh, community listen listening sessions which did not yield a lot of folks last month or this month um they're re-hosting a number of them and so if people are interested or want to contribute to what's happening with the superintendent search um they can find that on i believe it's nolasuperintendent.com and those sessions are coming up in the next weekend too okay thank you thank you you guys be well i'll see you later Bye. bye 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 this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week Nick Crestel, Michael Isaac Stein, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>